0: NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP
1: Radio. Welcome listeners. I'm Elise Ivan adol at the National Writing Project in California, and this is NWP Radio. Today we're going to welcome Noah Waspy, producer of Ohio Writing Project's marvelous podcast, Right answers. He's here with a clip from one of their recent shows. So Noah, it's really good to have you here at NWP radio. And I gather that today you're going to have us thinking about diversifying and expanding the literature in our classrooms. Thanks for
0: having me, Elise. And you are absolutely correct. This is a clip from my interview with Julia Torres. And Julia is a passionate teacher librarian who is one of the founders of the disrupt text movement, if you didn't already know. And I met her at a teaching conference in Wyoming a couple years back. She's from Denver. They're not too far away from each other. And I was so excited when she agreed to do our show.
1: We're really excited that you brought this clip. Um, Disrupt Text, of course, has certainly had a profound impact on really lots of folks at NWP. So that's reason enough to listen to this clip. But there's actually another reason why this is a particularly timely conversation As you know, it's April, it's National Poetry Month, and I think there are gonna be teachers all across the nation in National Poetry Month who are using Amanda Gorman's really extraordinary inauguration poem, The Hill We Climb. It's out in book form, in fact, right now. The publishers asked Disrupt Text to create a teaching guide for it. We're gonna be pointing to that in the show notes, so it's especially a good time to hear from Julia Torres
0: yeah it's so cool and i'll just say this one of the first things in disrupt text mission statement is that literacy is liberation and i can't think of a better poem in this moment than amanda gorman's so in this interview julia teaches a masterclass in breaking down what all of this means for teachers and if you know anything about disrupt texts and the movement then you can probably also guess that we'll be talking about the inner work that needs to go on when a teacher decides to transform their library, because it's not just about diversifying a library. There's a lot of inner work that has to happen first. It's a very nuanced, nuanced process.
1: Mm, Okay, let's have a listen.
0: I read in a KQE article, which I recommend everyone check out, four pillars underpin the disrupt text movement examining our own biases, center Black, Indigenous, and voices of color in literature, apply critical literary lenses to our teaching practices, and work in community with other people, especially those in the VIPOC communities. And you made a really interesting point that I was hoping you could elaborate on here. You said that a lot of folks tend to skip over pillar number one, which is examining our own biases before jumping into diversifying the texts that are In our collections. Can you talk a little bit about why this first step is so important?
2: Over 80% of all educators in American public schools identify as white. The student population is growing but very soon it's going to be the opposite. Where closer to 70, 65, 70% of students identify as mixed race or not white. One of the things that we're facing is a teaching population that doesn't look like our students. Part of the reason for that is that a lot of our students have a traumatic experience in school. Our BIPOC students have a traumatic experience in school, so why would they then want to continue and do that to someone else? I have spoken with students who say, why would I want to leave college after I've finally graduated and go straight into an unpaid internship? I need to start making money because of the idea of intergenerational wealth and how communities of color are strategically and over history. We have been stripped of our wealth over and over again. A lot of folks don't understand the historical or current need for the internal bias introspection, the anti-bias work. And it is my belief and all of our beliefs. I I will say that we're united in this. I don't, again, want to speak for any of the other ladies, but I can say that we are united in the understanding that anti-bias work is integral to this. You have to interrogate your own bias. Otherwise, you will not understand why you put books like The Crucible and The Scarlet Letter or um, Waiting for Godot so high on the list of works that students just have to know in order to be considered these educated, literate people. And I find it really coincidental, of course, if there are white male educators listening to this, please know it hasn't escaped my notice that folks will put specifically white male people in the canon because that's the area where you are most likely to experience expertise and be seen as the keeper of the knowledge. Elevating someone else's funds of knowledge or someone else's cultural capital is not a position that is comfortable for a lot of white people and for a lot of white males. And that's something that I'm gradually seeing start to change, which is really exciting and awesome and hopeful. But I also feel like in the United States, particularly, there's this strange melee of emotions that go along with introspection. And as soon as someone starts to feel um, threatened or guilty or sad or angry or any of those emotions, then they don't want to continue working on it. And I don't have the luxury of not talking about race. It's been a part of my life from day one. So I remember being a very little girl and asking my mom why everybody got out of the pool when I did. (sighs) I was in Texas. And so those are the types of things that like, I don't have the privilege to just ignore. And I'm also noticing another trend, which is the fetishization. And I always struggle with that. I am (laughs) trilingual, so pardon me. But the fetishization of like the pain that you feel when you read something like White Fragility, I still recommend that book because all books on anti-racism or race, I don't think any of them are wholly good or wholly bad. There are good things about them and things that I wish were different. But I would say that if people are all in this place right now where they want to do what, what was that that monks did? They wore the hair suit. They just want to wear the hair suit of whiteness. Okay, that's great. But what I need is for folks to work on themselves so that they can notice the thought patterns and behaviors and speech that comes out of their mouth that is a part of the oppressive structures that keep our students feeling marginalized, erased, oppressed, whatever. I'm not really concerned with people wallowing in guilt. I want actions, words, policies, procedures. I want all of that stuff to change.
0: And it also seems like it's really nuanced work. It's more, once you realize that you want to change and start teaching differently, teaching a way that disrupts texts, it's more than just finding books where there's a person of color on the cover of the book. And I know that you've talked a lot about this. What are some things that you want more teachers and librarians to think about when they're building out their libraries?
2: I'd like for folks to think about making sure that the own voices texts are given first priority, front and center, purchased in class sets, So yes, it is possible to do research and then write from a perspective that's not your own. But I also think that it's really important to elevate the folks who are writing from their own perspective or one that they're adjacent to, because that's not easy to do. It's so hard to beat through the barriers in the publishing industry to even get published in the first place. So folks need to understand that to get published and to get your book in front of teachers. There's a lot of work that goes into that. So recognizing and respecting that is really important. I also think that it's really important for folks to remember what it's like to be a student if you can. Though we are operating in a very different atmosphere from when our students, when we were students ourselves, it doesn't feel good to be in a space where you're continually told you need to be different, you don't know enough. The world's going to be different i'm preparing you for the future these are all promises that we don't know are true so i would like for folks when we are thinking about own voices and when we are thinking about books that we bring into the classroom to think of it as an experience that you want to share with the student and to protect the emotional safety of your students from marginalized populations because if they are the only in a room full of white students you can guarantee there's some level of discomfort that they're experiencing. They may not express that to you, but you need to acknowledge that and commit to learning what it would mean to create an emotionally safe space for them and not tokenizing them. And then I think it's also important not to do things like think that all Black people are monolithic. So the Black experience can be represented by five books about urban East Coast life for a Black person. There are lots of black folks living in the West, such as myself. There are lots of black folks who live in rural areas. And then the same thing goes for the Latinx diaspora. The same thing goes for the Asian diaspora. And I think it's really important to like know your statistics. Know that Filipino Americans are like the third largest immigrant group in the United States, but also very erased, marginalized. And I just learned that, about that from the author of Patron Saints of Nothing a couple of days ago. So I just want folks to really spend some time doing the introspective work before you jump out into being the leader of a movement. Because right now, and several years ago, I saw folks who are like, I am the wokest person out here and I am gonna be the one that is going to be out here just waking up other people when they were not woke themselves. And I hate the word woke because it's a process of awakening, right? Brendan, Kylie, and I just talked about that. A few days ago, it's the process of awakening. If you refer to yourself as woke, the moment that you think you've got it all down and you're ready to start teaching other people is when you will realize that you're at the beginning of your journey.
1: Oh, wow. What a great clip, Noah. Thank you. One of the things I really appreciate is her emphasis on how, really, we're all learning and we all need to be thinking about the tremendous diversity of our student population right now. Uh, Of course, she says it and we know it, it's a particular issue given the extreme dominance of white teachers as a portion of the teaching population. We're a huge percentage. But as she makes clear, it's really everybody's challenge. Um, And you could say everyone's joy too, to expand our consciousness relative to the cultures and the histories of our students. Whoever we are, that group of students is more diverse than any one of us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what I love is how thoughtful Julia is in breaking down as I said before, the nuanced and introspective work that goes into reading as a form of liberation. And it was such a great point that this anti-racist work, it's an ongoing process of awakening.
1: Yeah, yeah. Listeners, the hashtag disrupt text, that's your pathway to teaching resources and discussions and colleagues interested in expanding the literature that gets into young people's hands. You can follow the hashtag on social media, and you can also find resources on a website by the very same name, Disrupt Texts. If you check the show notes, including a link to Amanda Gorman's poem and the Disrupt Text guide that goes with it, you'll find a lot of that stuff. But just think, Disrupt Texts. And of course, go and check out Write Answers, podcast of the Ohio Writing Project, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elise from NWP Radio, and we'll see you again You're soon. You're
0: listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.
2: NWP Radio.